0: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Nice to see you all this evening. Really glad to be with you. Uh, You know, it's unusual, but right up front in this parable, Luke tells us why Jesus told the parable. Uh, Before he even tells us what the parable is that Jesus taught, he tells us that Jesus taught this parable to the effect that we should always pray And not lose heart. Well, this Sunday is the Sunday that is slated for a sermon on stewardship. And I have to tell you, this parable doesn't really have anything to do with stewardship. About how you're to manage your finances or what you're supposed to give to the church. Though I will tell you that as the rector, and as the one who is sort of in charge of raising money for next year ultimately... I have been convicted that I need to always pray and never lose heart, right? So, in fact, we all ought to be praying uh, about God's provision for our church, and as we pray those prayers, we are not to lose heart. But this parable is not about stewardship. It's about prayer. This is a parable about prayer. In fact, I have been wanting to preach a sermon on prayer for quite some time, um, most personally, because I find prayer difficult. And I... Um, I find it very helpful to preach to myself on things that I'm struggling with personally. More importantly, even than that, is that I've been wanting to preach a prayer on—I mean, I'll preach a sermon on prayer because prayer is really the fuel for the work of the church. Prayer is the fuel for the work of the church. You could give millions of dollars to this church, but a church without prayer is like a Ferrari without gas. Right? Lots of potential, no power to go. So, stewardship, we've said before, stewardship is the management of all that God has given to us, and one of the very most important things that God has given to us is prayer. So, we can imagine a church that gives a lot of money, but doesn't pray very much. But it's really hard to imagine a church that prays a lot, but doesn't give very much. So, we are going to talk about prayer and call it a stewardship sermon. Is that all right with you? Okay. So, like many of Jesus' parables, this one is hard. It's difficult. We're told what it's about, and it's still difficult because none of it is what we would expect. God seems to be compared to an unjust judge who doesn't care about anybody but himself. The woman who's asking for justice, we're actually never told if she deserves justice. And she does get what she's after, but only after incredible effort on her part, and only because the judge is just exasperated and self-interested. So, let's ask three questions of this crazy parable. Number one, what can we learn about God from this parable? Number two, what can we learn about prayer from this parable, And number three, let's finish it with the question that Jesus asks, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? So, What can we learn about God? What can we learn about prayer? When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? So first question, what can we learn about God from this parable? The judge that Jesus describes in this parable is sort of an anti-hero, isn't he? Not really Captain America or Superman, much more Don Draper or Jack Sparrow, uh, an anti-hero, a character that the woman turns to because she has to, not because she wants to. He is a man with power, but with obvious faults. He is a paragon of vice, not a paragon of virtue. This is not who we would expect for Jesus to put in the God slot of this parable, is it? And yet the woman stays after him, confronts him repeatedly, not just in the courtroom, but also in the marketplace, in the pub, on his own front doorstep. She wears him down so he just finally throws up his hands, and he rules in her favor. Justice is spoken over her. We have no way of knowing whether her case was actually just. But justice is declared over her nonetheless. The judge is mostly, I think, a character of contrast to God. I mean, if the word of justice is spoken over this woman by this rotten judge who doesn't care about anybody but himself, then how much more will God, who is good and loving and just and kind, how much more will he speak justice over us? There's obvious contrast. But there are also at least three similarities between God and this judge that are worth mentioning. And in fact, I think these are really what Jesus intends for us to learn about God. Three things. First, the widow is coming to the judge for a declaration of justice. She is looking to be justified. Which is to say that she's coming to this judge to be declared innocent. The original Greek you may know is Um, the word for justice is the same as the word for righteousness. She's coming, she's asking to be declared righteous. And it is the declaration of the judge that's going to make all the difference for this woman, this widow, just as what God, our judge, has to say about us makes all the difference for us. Second thing the judge issues this declaration of justice for the woman with no regard as to whether the case was legitimate. We're not told any parameters of the case, no particulars, whether she was in the right or in the wrong. The judge doesn't seem to care. And we are told that she's a widow. And at least by stereotype, she would have been among the most vulnerable in her society. She had no money with which to bribe the judge. She had no one to plead the case on her behalf. So she came empty-handed, with nothing, uh, no argument except her persistence and her need. And she came to the only one who could do anything about her case. And what she receives is sheer grace. The judge's declaration of righteousness, without regard to whether or not she was actually righteous, is unjust indeed. And yet, to the recipient of grace, she doesn't care if it's unjust, right? The word spoken over her is life saving, it's freeing, it's transforming. Third similarity this gracious declaration comes from the most unexpected place. We hardly expect this heartless judge to avenge this widow. And we hardly expect our own eternal judge to be a king who has no wealth and no army. Or to be a, a savior who dies in the hands of angry men. Or to be a glorious God who came to save sinners. This unjust anti-hero is no mirror image of our good and gracious God. But I do think Jesus intends that we learn a lot about God from Him. It is His declaration, His Word alone that justifies. And He does so for His own purposes, in His own way, and not because we deserve it. What can we learn about God from this parable? His word that justifies by grace is given unfailingly through an unexpected Savior. Second question. What can we learn about prayer from this parable? Now, I, I don't know about you, but like I said before, I find prayer difficult. My mind wanders. You know, I close my eyes and oh, I go to sleep. <laughs> or, or I start. From praying about someone or I'm praying for someone and I start having conversations with those people and pretty soon I've, for, I've forgotten all about bringing that before the Lord. I, I envy those that we sometimes call prayer warriors, you know, those folks that they, if they tell you that they're praying for you, you know that is an email that God is opening, right? And it's not going to stop getting into his inbox until you tell him to stop sending it because they're going to pray for you. I envy those people. I have to remember, if I say you're in my prayers, I'm probably praying for you right then. So, just the way it is. Going to be real with you. The great Welsh preacher of World War II, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once wrote, Prayer is beyond question. The highest activity of the human soul. Men and women are at their greatest and highest when upon their knees they come face to face with God. It is not only the highest activity of the soul, is the ultimate test of our true spiritual condition. And Bishop John Rogers once said, a prayerless Christian is a contradiction in terms. I find prayer difficult. And yet I also find these lofty statements about prayer are absolutely true. And I have seen amazing things happen through prayer. Prayer. I have seen tumors disappear. I have seen relationships reconciled and marriages healed. I have seen bills paid and career paths changed. I have seen churches turned around. I have seen addictions overcome. And I have seen lives changed. And I have also seen prayers seem to go unanswered as people wait and wait And I don't always know what to do with that except to stay at it. And I think that's what we can learn from this parable about prayer. The widow stays at it. She's only got one place to go, so she takes every opportunity to bend the ear of the judge with her plea, and he hears her. And for his own reasons, he doesn't act right away, but he hears her, and eventually he does act. Now, this widow had to chase down her judge, never knowing what she'd get. But we, we can look to the justifying and gracious cross of Jesus Christ at all times and know that the judgment has already been given. That justice has graciously been declared over us. That He loves us. That He hears us. And that in His time, He's going to act. Prayer is at its roots communion with God. Whether it is a conversation that we're having of praise and adoration, or whether it is a desperate plea for yourself or for someone else. Whether it's a meditation on a Bible verse or time spent in your journal that's what I really like to do or it's a song sung to God while you're driving down the road. Whatever form prayer takes it is communion with the Almighty. It is communion with the judge, the only one who can really do anything about our case. I think that God does make us wait sometimes so we we spend that time with Him. You know, He holds the thing we want behind His back so we will look at Him in the face because He knows that if we get the healing we want or if we get the big promotion that we're after, that we're usually just going to move on until we want something else. And He knows that to have those things, But not to have Him is to be no better off. At least eternally speaking. The commentator David Wilcock wrote this. He said, It is a mark of the disciples of Jesus that they practice constant contact with the God who they know always hears their prayer. His answer may not always be what they hope for. It may sometimes be no. It often may be wait. But they learn by experience that just as often as they pray, so often will they be answered speedily. His elect cry to Him day and night, in fact, not because He does not listen, but precisely because He does. And that is why Jesus concludes this passage with our final question. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? You see, God has not just given us stuff To steward. But in fact, he's also given us a relationship with himself to steward. How is your stewardship of the relationship that you have with God? I find this really personally convicting that prayer is the evidence, prayer is the stewardship of what we really believe about who God is. Is prayer just a meditative practice so I can get peace of mind? Or is prayer the precious and sought-after time of communion with the most important being in the universe, the Creator and Savior of all who deigns to give us His full and unbridled attention when we so much as bow our heads and think His name? Is He worthy of my full and constant attention, my full and constant trust, or just a passing minute or two when I'm in trouble? When Jesus comes back, when he, if you he, if you walk through that door right now, what sort of faith would he find? I'm preaching myself. I've been preaching myself all week. But I'm convinced that prayer is the fuel for your life and my life. And prayer is the fuel for this church prayer from grateful recipients of God's lavish grace as the ongoing outpouring of a daring faith in Jesus Christ. That is the fuel for this church. So thank you. Thank you for your generous giving to this church. But please, please pray. Pray. Spend time. Spend that communion time with the Lord. Pray always. And don't lose heart. Steward well your relationship with our Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen.